And tonight, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're looking specifically at verses 12 through 19, but we will read uh, from 1 through 19. Again, listen to the Lord's word. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then also uh, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has risen, been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are, of all men, most to be pitied. This is the Lord's word. Would you bow with me, friends, and let's pray. We thank you again, Lord, for this day, um, for a day in which 52 times a year at least we think of the resurrection. And some days in our culture stand out beyond others as days to especially focus upon things. And we come today, Father, to again be reminded of what you have done and of the great importance of this resurrection of Christ from the grave. We thank you for this and for the hope that it does give us in our hearts as we look at the world around us. And yet, Father, we, we realize and recognize that even many in your church today do not believe in a real, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. These same old heresies continue, Father, to recycle. And so we pray that you would make us mindful and that there would not be a sinful, unbelieving heart within earshot of this word, but that we would be those who heed the, the warnings and the cautions, and that we would be those who hold to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To this end, I pray, O Lord, that you would bless us now with your Holy Spirit from on high and give us understanding and help us, O Lord, to apply your word faithfully. Bless your servant and bless these, your people. Now we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Ideas have consequences. Um, the Sunday school class this morning was good, and I appreciate so much uh, Stephen Lawson. Lawson or Larson? Lawson. Lawson. 
Uh, I appreciate him very much, and, and uh, I appreciate it when he says things that I know I myself have said and I've heard others of you say that we can't just all go along and get along, and it, it does matter. Even if a person is sincere, um, you can be sincerely wrong, and it's a very dangerous thing. Ideas have consequences, and, and that's the first thing I want you to realize. Ideas are like rudders on a ship. It seems like it's such a small thing, but it can make the difference between you sailing to England or sailing to Japan, right? It's just a small thing, and these, these ideas, once borne out, uh, do have consequences with them. Take, for instance, uh, the theory of evolution. Uh, do I need to convince you that that theory has had dire consequences in our culture and in our world? Man, according to this theory, is a, is a creature who is in progress. He's progressively getting better. He's improving and, and, and morphing, as it were, uh, culturally and physically, all of these things. He is the captain of his destiny. We can explain all things in light of this theory. We can say uh, that all things exist apart from a creator. The only absolute or what the, uh, the masses say are absolute or tell us what is right. It is about the survival of the fittest, and so therefore babies don't have a chance. Equality of all species, except, again, human babies, baby seals, baby eagles, puppies, kittens, they all have more rights, it seems now, more than even an image bearer of God. And soon, we've seen it already in our country, senior citizens are now labeled as unproductive. They don't, can't compete anymore with the best of the rest of the human, uh, human race and so now we're allowing them to be put to death. Life in, this, in light of this theory has become purposeless. I remember when Columbine shootings took place, my grandfather, uh, a pastor, uh, said, what did they think was going to happen this day that, that has come to this nation? And remember Columbine, this was what, 99, 98, something like that? And uh, he said, what did they think was going to happen? We told them that they are products of evolution. We told them there is no God. We told them there is no judgment. We told them it was about the survival of the fittest. We told them that they are the most important little creatures in the universe. Why are we surprised when they turn around and start shooting each other? Ideas have consequences. Or uh, you remember Alfred Kinsey. Some of you may know that name. Um, what a blight. Um, he was the one who came out with the Kinsey Report on human sexuality. And there is no small, are no small consequences with that idea. The whole pro point behind that uh, study was to attack the mores of Christian ethics. So we consider that the Bible says that uh, intimacy between a man and a woman and the bonds of marriage is the way God designed it and it is for the purpose of the mutual help for fighting uncleanness cleanness, producing a godly seed having children right? it is supposed to be a blessing in the confines of marriage <clears throat> um, and yet the consequences of the Kinsey report were that we saw the sexual revolution we saw pornography become standardized um, and that which was to be a glorious and wonderful thing, picturing Christ and his church has become cheapened, sold, marketed. People pay money and sit in theaters and watch filth. 
There is disease and unwanted children and countless millions who are scarred both emotionally and physically. Ideas have consequences. They have consequences, and, and what a person believes truly matters. There's always a, a contrary voice to truth that we should be, uh, be aware of. In this instance, as we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19, it is the truth of the res- resurrection that is being contradicted by a false narrative. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Listen again to what the good news is, and we highlighted this this morning um, from Matthew 28. Paul writes, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul is saying, once again, there is a resurrection of the dead. We've read verses 1 through um, 11. Um, as, he is, as he has said these things, and he speaks of the resurrection in no uh, ambiguous terms. It is a fact that this has occurred. He presents the truth. Um, and yet, the contrary message that was being propagated in the church was, some are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. A very contrary message. And, and I was, I was preparing for this. I'm thinking about the liberal church in the United States, right? What does the liberal church do? Oh, there is no resurrection. Well, this is all spiritual, you know. We're going to think of it metaphorically. And we're not going to get too crazy about miracles because we all know that these things aren't scientifically verifiable. And so they undermine the scripture, which I hope you'll see by the end of this text, you will see how ludicrous it is that a liberal church, and by liberal I mean, again, they are preaching contrary doctrines to what the scriptures plainly teach. And and what it does is it destroys the church. It destroys the faith of people. And it leaves them in despair. It leaves them stuck in their sin without hope. That's what liberal theology does. That's why Gresham Machen and the OPC fought so vehemently against this. Imagine missionaries going on the field and preaching a Jesus who wasn't the Christ, who wasn't God. What kind of hope can, can a missionary bring if Christ himself is not God? So here the apostle presents the truth. Again, the message preached by Paul and the other apostles was and remains to this day a factual historic message which the scriptures themselves foretold centuries before as early as Genesis 3.15 where the Lord said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Yes, that's the first mention of the gospel in the scriptures. Um, While they were still in the garden, we had the promise of the gospel given to us. Christ died for our sins. God's only begotten uh, came into this world to fulfill the just requirements of the law in the sinner's place and to suffer likewise in our place on the cross. We see this in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Secondly, in uh, verse 4, he would go on to say, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Again, he says he was buried. He truly, Jesus Christ truly died. It was not a hoax. 
his body went cold and he was laid in a tomb and he was wrapped in burial linens. The Marys sat across from the tomb. They saw where the body of Christ was laid. In fact, if you go back and you compare the gospel accounts, Pilate himself was already surprised that Jesus had died so quickly. Remember, this, the scriptures speak about the spear being stuck into his side. He had died. He gave up his spirit. There is no doubt that he actually physically died. And then again, as Paul says, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This being attested to by the apostles and by more than 500 brethren at one time, proving that Jesus Christ is precisely who he claimed to be and that he did conquer the grave and he conquered the penalty of our sin. This message, says Paul here, if held to by faith will save you. That's the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ has done. Do you know, have you ever seen anyone else come back from the grave? Have you? I have not. I have not. The fact that he came from the grave, uh, rose from the grave, says that he, he can do all that he promised he was going to do if a man or a woman will but put their faith upon Jesus Christ, they will never be disappointed. He will do exactly what he said he is going to do. He will not be disappointed because Jesus Christ saves. It's a powerful message. It's a powerful message, so strong that it even changes the most prideful individuals into one and in some of the greatest servants. Again, consider the Apostle Paul and what he was up to uh, prior to the Lord saving him. He was a persecutor of the church. He says that here. Uh, the man I mentioned this morning in our presbytery exams, I'll tell you, that was the biggest impact to me, just to hear him say, very matter-of-factly, this is what I did, this is what I was, and this is what Jesus Christ has done for me. And you would look at him, as I'm sure others would look at Legion, being delivered from those demons, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, are you the same guy? Uh, that was me. <laughs> I, I was in a bad way. But look what, look what the Lord has done and how he delivered me. Friends, this is what Jesus Christ does. This is what he does. And, it, and it's not reliant upon you to make it happen. He brings and pours out his spirit and he fills us and he grants us the ability then to struggle against the flesh and he sets us free. He produces in us the fruit. That's Colossians. That's Galatians. This is what the Lord does. He brings the life. It's so powerful. Again, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, says the apostle, summarizing the crux of the gospel, If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, then there's this contrary message that's being preached. How do some among you say, then, uh, there is no resurrection of the dead? The message preached by the apostles was that of a physical death, a physical burial, and a physical resurrection. Yet, some among the church were putting a new slant on the resurrection. A new perspective, we might say, on the historic factual resurrection of our Lord. One commentator said something that was very helpful. He said, they did not reject the doctrine of the resurrection, but reinterpreted it by saying that Christ's resurrection was 
a spiritual resurrection. They taught that with Christ, they were also raised from the dead at the time of their baptism. Thus, for them, the resurrection had already taken place and had only passing significance. They did not accept it as a tenet of the Christian faith and therefore were in danger of separating themselves from the church. This happens often. You understand, this is how Satan works. He gets us to redefine things. I sat on an airplane. I was flying back to the United States from Myanmar, and uh, a man sat next to me, a Roman Catholic man who sat next to me, and we struck up a conversation. We might as well. We're going to be sitting next to each other for some hours. And um, he said to me, my son has just married a Buddhist girl. I said, oh, yeah, my son. The Roman Catholic married a Buddhist girl. And I said, what do you make of that? He goes, well, I suppose they're not too different. And I, I, I looked at him, and I thought, how do you say this? I said, well, I suppose it's how we define what being a Christian is. If, for instance, we think that being a Christian means I work at the soup kitchen and I raise alms and give to the poor, I suppose, I suppose they, could, they could get along just fine. But if you define Christianity as being one who is washed by the blood of Christ and clothed in his righteousness, I would say that they're going to be worlds apart. You see, and this is how Satan does it. He gets us thinking that it's let's not squabble. Let's not, let's not mince words. Let's not squabble over these things. Uh, this doesn't sound too bad, this idea of resurrection, does it? I mean, if a man wants to believe that he physically, that Christ physically rose from the dead, oh, that's fine. And if this man wants to say, well, it was metaphoric, it was spiritual, it was a figure of speech, he was resurrected, would you say, oh, that's fine. There's no big difference. No, you could never say that. You could never say that and not be true to the scriptures, not be true to the Lord. And when we have this kind of pressure in our world today, we can both believe in, in whatever we want. There's, there's plenty of wiggle room here for uh, the tent is big, we hear. We can all abide in this tent. Can we? You see, this is, this is what has happened with liberalism. Liberalism says, oh, there's plenty of wiggle room. Well, I, I might be of that European descent kind of thing where I'm husking away the skin of the, the New Testament and I'm getting to the kernel of the truth. I'm getting to the real essence, the essential nature of what, right? Neo-orthodoxy is what we call that. Barth and, and, and Boltman and, and we're going to take these, these ingenious men uh, from Europe, these theologians, and what we do is we end up gutting the gospel of its power. I want you to notice Paul doesn't think this is mincing words. Paul doesn't think that this is a, a, a small deal. That this matters, that ideas do have consequences. My friends, if the Bible, being God's word and God who cannot lie, um, is, and, and therefore the word is true, do we allow people to assault its most basic tenets? If it is true, can it be that there is other truth that opposes it? 
There cannot be. There cannot be. And, and I, and I want to answer a question that strikes me uh, that we hear oftentimes, and it's, but can we really ever know these things? Yes, we can. How? Because the God who gives us his word is the God who gives us language. Guess who invented language? <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. You see, and, and I don't know what the evolutionist does with language. How do you, how do you invent language? But nouns, verbs, adjectives, sentence structures, diagrams, uh, uh, in, interpreting scripture with scripture and understanding. Can you know what the Bible says? Can we really say absolutely that there was a resurrection? Or, Pastor Strong, are you just digging your heels in and being cantankerous and obstinate and unwilling to flex with the rest of the world? Yes, friends, I am unwilling to flex with the rest of the world, as was the Apostle Paul. And yes, we can absolutely know the scriptures because the scriptures are given to us. God prattles to us. He speaks down to us. He reveals to us who he is and what he requires of men. And he tells us what we are to believe. So I don't have to read the Bible and say, huh, I wonder what he means by this. I read the scripture and I go, here's what he says. Now, we can apply it in a thousand different ways. But as for meaning, there's one meaning. There is one meaning. And it's the job of the student of the word of God to find out what God means by what he says, not what you think he means by what he says. That's an important point. So when someone comes into the church and says, well, the resurrection... This Paul, he's, he's uptight. He's uptight. He really doesn't need to go that far or state it that strong. He needs to be challenged because what he is doing is he's undermining then the faith of the other people. You can know the Bible, and it's given to us, and God will help us by his spirit and by the saints who have gone before who have also studied, and we make use of the gifts of the Spirit that he has given to his church. Not everyone's a teacher, granted. Not everyone's supposed to uh, spend their days laboring in the word, granted. But the Lord has given gifts to his people so that we can know what the scriptures state. And we, we see what it states, and then we stand upon it. And we are not to be shaken from it. So when the Bible says something... We are to take it as true, and we are not to think it anything less than what it says. So here, now, the apostle challenges this false teaching, because as we will now see, ideas, unsound ideas, bad theology, carry with them grave consequences. Again, there were contrary voices to truth being, uh, bringing destructive ends into the church, so now the apostle runs us through the implications of this unsound, bad theology, taking the Corinthians through the pitfalls of denying that Jesus Christ has, uh, uh, that he has not just resurrected uh, physically, but he has absolutely been resurrected physically, and it was not just a spiritual resurrection as they maintained. Um, and he fights this. He fights these very things. Understand that if there is no physical resurrection, friends, that means there is no resurrection, period. 
if there is no physical, if Christ Jesus didn't rise from the dead 2,000 years ago, if his body didn't physically come out of the grave, if it was only just a spiritual thing, Paul says there is no resurrection, period. Four times the apostle states that the contrary message was something like the dead are not raised or there is no resurrection of the dead. The spirit of man might be set free, but his body is not taken up again. Again, that was the idea. The idea of a physical resurrection was considered ludicrous to the philosophers of the age. We read this in Acts chapter 17, that this man portrays some strange deity, or we are told in the end of Acts 17 and verse 32 that others sneered at the idea that there would be a physical resurrection. Look at the world today. Look at the world today. They treat it as though it's, it's insanity. So to use their logic, if the dead are not raised, again, this is an absolute statement, if, if this is uh, the, the dead coming to, back to life physically, if this is an impossibility, then you cannot believe that Jesus Christ rose from the, from the grave. He too died, and that for our sins, but if dead men can't rise, then Jesus couldn't have risen either. That's the logic. You're saying he, the dead can't rise. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus can't rise. Now imagine who he's writing to. He's writing to the church, isn't he? He's writing to people about the resurrection. They are saying, we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. But some of us want to believe that maybe the resurrection wasn't physical. It was maybe perhaps just a spiritual thing. Let's not get tied up in knots over these things. And Paul says, you need to get tied up in knots over these things. Because it matters. If the, if the dead don't rise from the grave, then Jesus Christ didn't die either, or didn't rise either. You can't have it both ways. Either they can have and will, or they can't haven't and won't. But for the sake of the argument, let us say that they don't. Is it really a big deal? Is there really all this great consequence? If Christ didn't rise from the dead, friends, listen to 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is in vain. He just starts delineating what are the consequences of saying that Christ didn't rise from the grave. And again, people think this is not a big deal. We can all work together. We're all going on the same path to the same place. Paul's saying, don't count on it. It's not true. And, and you listen to his logic and it's flawless. The logic here is flawless. If Christ is not raised from the grave, what does that mean about preaching? It means it's empty of meaning. It's empty of truth and of reality and of power. You are wasting your time sitting here this evening and coming to church. You are wasting your time. You hear me? If Christ didn't rise from the dead, the whole thing's a farce. Get up and go home. And I'm really wasting my time, aren't I? Because I stand up here and try to convince you of things that I can't convince you of. If Jesus is resurrection from the dead, by which he was declared the son of God with power, if his resurrection, which has confirmed that he is the remedy for sin, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the way to God the Father, that he came to destroy Satan's works, if he didn't resurrect on the third day, he didn't destroy the works of Satan. And if he didn't destroy it, then my preaching is empty, and I have no good news to offer you. There is no promise of heaven, no promise of just, justice or judgment for the wicked. There is no salve for your aching hearts. There is no reason to call you to repentance or obedience because Christ didn't and couldn't do what he said 
If the dead aren't raised, we are to be pitied. And so the preached word is pointless. And friends, so is your faith. My preaching is pointless, and your faith in the message that is preached is nonsense. You got out of bed this morning. You got out of your lazy chairs, your lazy chairs, your lazy boy chairs um, this afternoon. You could have enjoyed your cup of coffee, settled in for the evening, watched something on television. You could have hung out with people at home eating chips and dip. But instead you came. You came for a belief in something this preacher who preaches from the book, the Bible, and you're, you're doing this, and it's pointless. And moreover, he says, the apostles are then a bunch of liars. You see how the whole thing starts to unravel if there is no resurrection. The whole thing starts to unravel, and it all becomes quite meaningless. The preaching, the belief in the, the message that is preached, and he says, and the apostles are a bunch of liars. Listen to verses 15 and 16. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. The apostles were all to be witnesses of the Lord's resurrection. John claims what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you. All of the people that he had mentioned earlier in chapter 15 especially the apostles, they're all liars. They're false prophets, false teachers, saying that God did something which he didn't and couldn't do. If this be the case, they are spreading falsehood, which would be punishable by death, but also would uh, cause them to be severely judged by the Lord. And I want to tell you, friends, based upon this, you think of the Judeo-Christian ethic that we all talk about and of which our older saints uh, have experienced this huge loss, this huge change in our culture from the time you were teenagers to the days now, and you look at it and you scratch your head and say, well, what's become of these things? What's become, what's become of our nation? What has become of morality? What has become? Well, I'll tell you what's become of it. We no longer believe Christ rose from the grave. And so why would we listen to a Bible that, that is virtually worthless? If we don't believe in the supernatural, if we don't believe that Jesus Christ physically came from the grave, where's the authority for any of this? You see, the resurrection is the, is the hinge pin for all of these other things. All morality, all decency, all order in this world depends upon a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. If Christ didn't raise, rise from the dead, the apostles themselves are a bunch of liars. Why would we listen to anything they have to say about marriage or sexuality? Why would we listen to anything they have to say about how you are uniquely and wonderfully made as a male or a female? Why would we listen to anything that the, the, the Sermon on the Mount instructs us about loving our enemies? You see this? It all falls apart if Christ be not raised from the dead. And then he says, Your faith is worthless if Christ 
has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. He said earlier that their faith was vain or empty, but here he calls it worthless, or as one commentator uh, translated it, he said fruitless. If the dead don't rise again, if Jesus hasn't um, risen, you're trusting in someone to do something he can't do. Your faith will produce nothing for you. You are still in your sin. If his resurrection was to be proof of his being the Son of God with power, to, power to save you by satisfying God the Father's anger against you, and he did not rise again, you haven't been declared right with God. You have no righteousness. You are still defiled and unholy. Beloved, you are still in your sins, and you are so in trouble. For at the day of judgment, his full wrath, undiminished, unwatered down, will be poured out upon you, because you are still in your sin. You had better start to weep. You see, there is no hope. In verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who had died in Christ, who had died trusting in him, they took their maiden voyage on the Titanic, and they have perished never to return, and they are lost to hell forever. Their sins are still upon them. They died confident of one thing, but ended up being quite surprised. So we see that there is grave consequences to ungodly, unbiblical theology. And the resurrection is that most important of all theologies. An unresurrected Messiah makes for miserable people. Listen again to verse 19 now. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be uh, men most to be pitied. If Christ is no salvation for those who have died, at best we can only hope in him for this life. He is no hope for the future life. If in this life only we, we are miserable and we should be pitied above all men, why? My friends, because we are losing, we have lost out on eternity. We can't hope in that. And so we, we, we look at this life. If Christ is not raised, there is no eternity in heaven, and hell awaits every last one of us. Both now, because we believed a message that said we are to take up our cross daily and follow him who can't save us, and we are called to die to ourselves. So while you're dying to yourself and depriving yourself of all of the treasures of the earth, you have nothing else to gain. Everyone else is plundering society. Everyone else is getting rich, eating and drinking and making merry and all of the world's pleasures. And we are living as though there is a future glory that awaits us. And if Christ be not resurrected, that glory doesn't exist. Poor us. We've been living as though there was a greater day that awaits us. And if Christ isn't resurrected, that day is not coming. That is, if Jesus hasn't risen bodily from the grave. So you see why this is important. You see why it matters that we celebrate the resurrection 
and that we remember what Jesus Christ did and that we don't listen to the liberal theology that creeps into the church. You know, it's a crazy thing about liberalism. They want to be accepted by the world. That's, That's the bottom line. We want to look impressive. We want to be received by the world. We want the world to sing our praises, to give us kudos. And you know, in my mind, there's nothing more disgraceful than a a Christian who will not stand upon the truth of Scripture. And we've got to get in grasp somehow. We've got to say, we've got to come to grips with that if we follow Jesus Christ faithfully, we will not be loved by the world. And you know what? That's a good thing. They spoke ill of the true prophets, didn't they? To be a friend with the world is to be an enemy with God, but to be a friend of God is to be at enmity with the world. Liberal theology compromises on the truth of Scripture because they want to appear as if um, we're reasonable, we're intellectual, we're, we're smart. And you know what? The gospel and the resurrection, they sneered at the Apostle Paul. He was a bright man. He was well-studied. He was well-disciplined. And they, they mocked him. They sneered at him as he proclaimed Jesus Christ in his resurrection. You can't be friends with the world. And if you compromise the truth of the resurrection, you actually compromise the truth of the gospel and you leave people in their sin and you leave them in their despair. Is it worth fighting for? Completely. Completely. But Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And we are not to be pitied. You are not to be pitied for believing in Jesus Christ. Rather, friends, I would say we are to be envied. This world has no treasure, has no hope that can outshine what awaits the Christian in the Lord. Jesus has risen, and those in Christ have not perished, but have truly begun to live. Jesus Christ has risen. Our sins are forgiven. They are forgotten, and they are put as far as the east is from the west because he has risen. Jesus has risen. The word of God is true, and so are all of his promises. And in Christ Jesus, all of the promises of God are what? Are yes. They are yes. Jesus has risen. And my friends, your faith in him is not an empty faith. And the word is not pointless. And your obedience is not unwarranted. Your trust in his justice and judgment and mercies is not misplaced. Jesus has risen. And so shall you. Jesus has risen and so shall you. This doctrine and this truth should fill us with great courage and great hope as he has conquered. Praise the Lord. He has conquered. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for this word and for um, the truth of it. And we thank you, Father, that you have been so kind to us to keep our eyes fixed upon the truth of Scripture. We ask that we would be faithful handlers of it 
and that we would have, like little children, this trust to believe the words you have said. We ask that we would grow in our handling of your word, that, Father, we would not esteem the opinions of men and that we would not desire for them to sing our praises or to think well of us or speak well of us. We pray, O Lord, that we would count it a joy to be considered fools for Christ. But we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the resurrection, Father, for raising your son on that third day, that first day of the week, pointing us forward to the future glory uh, that we wait for, that we anticipate, because Christ was raised bodily from the grave. Thank you for your love. Now we pray that your blessing be upon us and in this word, and that it will roll around in our minds and hearts, and that we would be greatly encouraged by all that you have done. Thank you for this day, and we thank you again for your faithfulness to us, your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.